Well, good morning. Um, we send you greetings from First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro. We kind of had a privilege to uh, be a sister church with you in Prince George's County as we seek to proclaim the gospel and live it out together uh, as his people. So it is a joy to, to be here with you today and to bring you God's word. We pray for you regularly. We love you, um, and we're thankful to be here with you this morning. So uh, if you would, please, uh, if you have a Bible, if you want to grab your Bible and turn with me to uh, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3. If you're looking at that black Bible in the chair that's sitting next to you, it looks like this. Ecclesiastes 3 is found on page 554. And I encourage you to follow along as we read God's Word together. I wonder if you've ever seen... Um, a piece of art known as a mosaic. A mosaic you can see in uh, an art museum or, or, or something like that. You go and what you see is you look at a picture and that picture is made of little tiles or pieces of glass or it could be made of little pictures, a photograph of individual people or different scenery. And when you look closely at a mosaic, you see individual pictures, you see individual tiles, a green tile, a blue tile, a yellow tile, a picture of a, a person, a picture of a mountain. And it doesn't, you know, you see the individual tiles. But the cool thing about a mosaic is when you step back, the individual tiles or individual photographs come together to make a bigger picture. And so what you realize is each of those little tiles kind of acts as a different brushstroke on that canvas to make that mosaic, a bigger picture. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul describes the Christian as, as God's workmanship. And in the original language, that word for workmanship is, refers to a piece of art, like a, like a painting. And so in light of Ephesians 2, and as we work through Ecclesiastes 3 this morning, what I want you to do with me is to picture your life like a canvas. Life is made of thousands of events and relationships and different moments. And each of those moments are, are decisions that you and I are going to make about our family or our work or our friendship or our home all these different decisions that we make throughout the day. And each of those moments, each of those decisions represent a different tile that you are adding to the mosaic of your life. You're kind of gluing that, that, that tile onto the canvas of your life. And each of us, as we walk through our day, we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to live our life and we're trying to make a mosaic that is a beautiful life. We want our life to matter. We want it to make sense. We want it to be beautiful, a life worth living. And so as we put these different tiles up on our mosaic, we, we are, we're, we're actually putting those tiles on the canvas of our life. We're making choices that carry significance. But in all of our effort and decisions that we make, what Scripture teaches us over and over is that there's a sovereign God who is putting his mosaic together. That's why in Ephesians 2.10 it says that we are his workmanship. 
So again, if you look at Mosaic, you zoom in, you see individual tiles that don't make a whole lot of sense, but when you zoom out, those tiles blend together to become a portrait, a picture of your life. Either way, whether you're zoomed in or zoomed out, you are looking at a portion of time of your life. And, and so when we look at time, we realize that we, are, we can't escape time in, in this world. We relate to time, and we relate to time differently. No matter where you go, no matter what decision you make today, the clock is always ticking. One writer notes, you know, when, when you think about the different ways that we relate to time, sometimes we feel loss. Where did the time go? Other times, when you think about how we relate to time, we, we, we feel frustrated. There just aren't enough hours in the day. Sometimes our relationship with time feels urgent. I've got to make the most of my time today. Sometimes it feels like regret. I've wasted all these years. Sometimes it's impatience. When will my time come? And, and I'll just say to the kids here, the younger you are, the more you're going to feel that because time just feels like it's a turtle going really slow. Other times we relate to time with fear. We look ahead and we don't want that moment that we dread to come. We relate to time differently. But time is inescapable. As created beings, time is inescapable. And so we need to ask the question this morning, what is a good life, what is a beautiful life look like look like within the constraints of time. Can't escape time, so what does a beautiful life look like within the constraints of time? Ecclesiastes is one of the wisdom books in the Bible. It's called wisdom literature. And so another way of asking that is, how can we live a wise life within the constraints of time? That's the question we want to ask. The question I think the text answers from Ecclesiastes 3 this morning. So if you will, look with me at God's word, starting in chapter 3, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. The writer who refers to himself as the preacher says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Let me pause there. When we're asking this question, what does a wise life, what does a beautiful life look like within the constraints of time, the first point that we see in the text here is we are to recognize our season. Point number one, recognize our season. We see that in verses one through eight. 
Those first eight verses, um, if you're new to the Bible, you, you might still recognize those verses because there was a band named The Birds who made that, that, that text, that poem, very popular in 1965. Fear not, I will not sing that to you this morning. You don't want to hear that. But in verse 1, he kind of sets out what he's talking about. And verse 1 portrays the human experience as a mosaic of time. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So that's the, that's the idea that he's going to be talking about. And then the poem in verses 2 through 8 then fleshes out what that looks like in our life. And, and to flesh out what that looks like, this, there's a season for everything in life, to flesh that out, the, the, the writer, the preacher, is going to do that with 14, uh, 14 different pairs of opposites. And when he does this, these pairs of opposites, it's a literary device known as a merismus. So we have polar opposites like north and south or like light and dark. And he's putting those together to indicate uh, one extreme from the other, and then the point is, when, when, when a writer uses that literary device, he's saying it's not just north and south or dark and light, it's, it's everything in between. That's the point. So, verse 2 says, it begins saying, oh, there's a time to be born and a time to die. So he's kind of wrapping up our life right there in verse 2 from the beginning of your life to the end of your life, from A to Z, and then everything in between. There's a season, there's a time for the, everything that happens in your life. Every event, every person, every circumstance that you're gonna face today or tomorrow, everything is a little tile that you're gonna put on the mosaic of your life, the canvas of your life. Now, to say that there are seasons, to call them seasons, I think highlights the fact that we're not in control, right? We didn't decide that, okay, now it's gonna, now it's gonna be fall. No, it's, it's something that happens to us. In the same way, in verse two, it says this is a time to be born. You didn't decide to be born, it just happened. Somebody else decided that it was your time to be born. Or you think of what it says, this is a time to weep and a time to mourn in verse four. You don't go looking for those times. They come into your life as unwanted guests. So in that sense, as we look at this poem in verses two through eight, the poem is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. In other words, there aren't commands in the poem. There aren't not marching orders. Do this, do this, do this. It's more descriptive. It's just, this is life. This is the nature of life. These are the seasons that we find ourselves in throughout our life. And the preacher's making it very clear for us that it's God, not us. It's God who sets the seasons of our life. In fact, in Daniel chapter two, it says, blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Daniel 2, verse 21. So God sets the seasons. God is the sovereign one. He is in control. And as Christians, we acknowledge that, right? We say amen to that truth. But in the day-to-day going through of our life, we struggle to believe that. We know it's a true theological statement, but we don't sometimes like living in light of the fact that God, not us, is the one who's in control. 
We want to think that if there's a season in life that we find ourselves in that we don't like, we can change it. We like to think that if there's a season of life that we really enjoy, that we can make it last. That's not how life works. The clock keeps going. And yet we still struggle to believe that. And everything in, a lot of things in our life uh, lead us to believe that lie that we can make time stand still, that we, can, that we can do that. You know, technology brings the world to our fingertips. Or if you just look at the businesses in, in Chevrolet, the, there's 24-hour gyms, there's 24-hour supermarkets, there's 24-hour gas stations. A lot of businesses are open 24-7. Or you can get on an airplane today and pretty much go anywhere you want in the world. Airplane, airplanes make the world feel small. And all these things in our life around us whisper in our ears that, that we can do what we want when we want to. They lead us to believe, even though we know the theological truth that God is sovereign, they lead us to believe that, we, that we can, we're in charge, we can control our lives. And we want to think that. We, when it comes to things that matter to us, we want to think that we're in control. Putting the pieces of our life together to create a mosaic that looks like we want it to look like. Now, are we free to live that way? To think that way? Sure. But what the preacher is going to tell us is that you're free to think that, but it's only pretending. If you think that you're ultimately in control of your tomorrow, then you're only pretending that you're in control. Just think of the farmer as an example. I grew up in Nebraska, so this is a natural example for me. The farmer's activities follow the season that they're in. When it's spring, you plant. When it's summer, you irrigate and you pull weeds. When it's autumn or the fall, you harvest. And then in the wintertime, when the ground is frozen, you work on your machinery and you get ready for the next planting in the next spring. Now, if you're a farmer, you can say, well, I don't like that. I don't like those seasons. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide for myself when the seasons are, I'm going to decide myself what's right to do in what season. And the farmer is free to go out in the freezing winter when the ground is covered with snow and say, you know what, this is when I'm going to plant my seeds. You're free to do that, farmer. But it's not going to go well for you. It's the wrong season to, to plant. You're going to waste your seed. You're going to waste your time. You're going to waste your life as a farmer if you live that way. The wise farmer recognizes the season they're in and then submits to what's appropriate in that season. And that's not true just for the farmer, that's true for all of us. Wise living recognizes the season that we're in and, and, and recognizes the constraints of the time that we live in and says, okay, this is the season I'm in and then we adjust how we're to live in that season according to the wisdom of God's word. That's what wise living looks like. In fact, if we skip forward to Ecclesiastes 8, you don't need to turn there, but in Ecclesiastes 8, he's gonna say, the wise heart will know the proper time, for there is a time and a way for everything. I learned this the hard way not too long ago. I am, um, Monday's my day off, and so, on my day off not too long ago, I 
Woke up in the morning and I mowed the lawn. This is what preachers do in their day off. I mowed the lawn and then there's a, there a hole in one of the portions of our vinyl siding. So I repaired some vinyl siding on the front of our house. And then after that, I took a sledgehammer to our shed in the back of our yard and I knocked the thing down because it was rotten. We needed a new shed. And then I picked up all the pieces of that shed and I hauled it off to the dump. But the next morning, I barely could get out of bed because my back hurt like crazy. And that aching back was a reminder that I am not 20 years old anymore. That season of my life is gone (laughs) and I'm not gonna get back. Now, am I free as a 41-year-old man? Am I free to pretend like I'm a 20-year-old? Yeah, I can, but it's not gonna go well for me. I'm gonna pay for it the next morning with ice packs and Advil. Wise living recognizes the season that they're in and we adjust how we live in that season according to the wisdom of God's word. So one of the questions we're going to ask ourselves in the first eight verses is, what season are you in right now? That'd be a wonderful discussion to have over lunch today, just to, to think about what, what season of life are you in right now? And then just go around the table and talk about that. We can measure our, the season that we're in by the time, you know, the time and calendar, and how old you are and things like that. But we can also measure the season that we're in by our relationships. This is another way to think about seasons. Some seasons, we're told in verse 5, are a time to embrace. So if you're married, if you, if you were single and now you're just, you just got married, husband and wife, that's a time to embrace. It's a new season you just entered into. Or if someone is in a season of mourning, sometimes when you're in mourning, words just don't suffice. And the best thing you can do is have the ministry of presence and to give that person who's mourning and weeping a hug. Time to embrace. Other seasons, though, call for a time to refrain from embracing. Sometimes we find ourselves in an unhealthy relationship and wisdom calls us to, em- to refrain from embracing. Kids, the older you, the older you become and the, and the more you're in, in, in school and you're choosing your friends, that's part of wisdom is, 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 is choosing friends that are wise friends that are going to in- point you in the right direction. And you need to have the, the, the wherewithal to recognize that sometimes I need to stay away from this person and this is a season not to embrace because they're gonna lead me down a wrong path. Parents, there's going to be a season when we, in our parenting, need to let go of our child to let them go out of the nest as an act of love. It's a time to, there's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. It just depends on what season you're in. Extroverts, any extroverts here? Extroverts love to talk and talk and talk, and the more people that are around them, energy comes. But extroverts, some seasons must, extroverts must learn that there are some seasons where you must be quiet. There's a time to keep silence, verse 7 says. Any introverts here? I'm an introvert. (laughs) Introverts love not to talk. But us introverts have to know that there are times, there are certain seasons that demand that we speak up. 
As verse 7 says, there is a time to speak. And in the context of thinking about this in the seasons of, of relationships, love calls us not only to consider what season I'm in, but what season the person I'm in talking with is in. Love, it, love helps me to look out and say, what season is the person I'm engaging with? What season are they in? Job is a good example of this. Job lost everything that he had in, in, in tragedy. And his friends were wonderful friends at first when they came to him and they just sat with him and wept with him. They were wonderful friends until they opened their mouths. They ignored the fact that Job was in a season where he was weeping and there was a time to weep and there's a time to mourn. And, and rather than making speculations about things that were above their pay grade, they should have recognized the season that Job was in and just wept with those who wept. Be a good friend. So we can think about the seasons that we're in in, time, in terms of time, in terms of relationships. We can also think about our, our, the seasons that we're in in terms of our work, whether it's in the marketplace or in our own home. Verse three says there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. He's using the farming imagery, but it can be applied to the home or the marketplace. Or verse three, there's a time to break down. My shed was rotten, it was time to come down. There's a time to break down. And there's also a time to build up, to build up a new business, a new venture, a new idea. There's different seasons. And, and notice as he walks through these different seasons how there's a different there's a, there's a beginning and there's an end, and it's wise to notice that. So, if you're, again, if you're a farmer, you plant, but you don't keep planting. There's an end to the planting season, and then you move on to the next thing. You move on to irrigating and pulling weeds, and then the next season is harvest. If you keep planting all throughout the year, you're going to miss the harvest. Zach Eswine notes here, he says, some of us do not know how to get started. When the time comes to start a new venture, we hit the snooze button. We procrastinate. Others of us do not know how to quit our work. We take work home with us, and we fight against the Sabbath rests, and we don't know how to rest. Friends, one of the reasons that God gives us the gift of gathering like this, like we're doing right now, one of the reasons he gives us the gift of a Sabbath like this is for us to come to God in this weekly rhythm and to put, pause, put the pause button everything else and just say, let's come to God together. Let's meet with the people of God and find rest for our weary souls. There's a sense when we come together like this that we should kind of come in here after a long week and be like, oh, I'm so glad to be here. I, my soul needs to hear God's word read. My soul needs to hear this, the songs and the and the singing of the saints. My soul needs to hear the prayers of the saints. My soul needs to hear God's word preached. My soul needs to feel the embrace of a brother or a sister. And then God gives us rest, God strengthens us, and he sends us out again. God's command for us to gather like we're doing right now is for our good. And we can ignore that, 
We could ignore the, this weekly rhythm, this weekly season that God has set up for us in God's word. We can ignore that for other things like sports or hobbies or work or just sleeping in. We're free to ignore the seasons that God has set. But again, if we push against the seasons that God gives us, it's like planting seed in January. It doesn't end well. If we ignore the seasons that God has put us in too long, our life begins to unravel. So we can look at seasons based on time. We can look at seasons based on relationships or even work. But we can also look at seasons based on money and possessions. They have seasons too. Look at verse 6. There's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Some of you are thinking, ah, verse 6. There's the verse I'm looking for, a verse I can use to get my husband to clean the junk out of the garage. It's a time to cast away, right? Well, I don't think so. I don't think it's necessarily the, the preacher's point. I think, again, he's, he's using verse 6 as it's more descriptive. He's saying that some seasons you make money and you acquire possessions. Other seasons you don't have money. You might lose money. You need money or you lose possessions. But whether you're making money or losing money, whether you're making lots of money or you need money, God is in control of whatever season that we're in. We tend to hoard money. One of the reasons we fall into the temptation of greed is because money promises security, right? You got money in the bank, you're safe. Feels that way. Proverbs 18.11 says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall, keeps the enemies out, like a high wall in his imagination. So there is a sense in which that's true. Poverty can mean ruin, and wealth can provide security. But the security that money offers us is temporary. It's only a high wall in one's imagination. True security is found in the God who rules over the markets, who rules over our jobs, who rules over every season that we find ourselves in. That's where true security lies. And that's what the preacher's trying to get us to see. Friends, when, 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 when people try to control the season that they're in, if you try to control the season that you're in, you will end up tired, weary, worried, fearful. Because you're taking on the task that God is meant to do in your life. And you and I are not God. If you're tired and exhausted from being, trying to pretend to be God, Ecclesiastes 3 has wonderful news for you and for me this morning. But there are painful seasons that we go through. Even in the poem in verses two through eight, the poem reminds us that there are seasons of death, seasons of mourning, seasons of war. And when you look at those seasons, you pick up the tile of war or crying or death 
And you're like, where does this go? Where does this tile go in the mosaic? I don't know where this fits. Where does this fit in my life? How is this going to be beautiful in my life? What do I do with this tile? You ever feel like that? You ever feel like there's something that happens to you or something in your life that you don't know what to do with? And meanwhile, the clock just keeps going? There's no pause button for you to figure this out. Just It keeps going. So what can we do then instead of worrying or trying to control the things that we can't control? If, if that doesn't get us anywhere, what else can we do? Well, again, the preacher has an answer for us. Point number two, trust the shepherd. Point number two is trust the shepherd. We're going to see that in verses, 20, or verses 9 through 22. Look at, verse, look at verse 9 with me. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has created everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone, who, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So if we get... If we, if we get good at recognizing the season that we're in, adjusting our life according to God's wisdom, and say, okay, this is, life is getting better, we might think, okay, I'm getting the hang of this. But then you read verse 9, and it blows that picture up. Verse 9 asks the question, what gain has the worker from all his toil? It's the same question that the preacher asks in chapter 1, Verse three, and the answer that the preacher's gonna give over and over in Ecclesiastes is, is that under the sun, there is no ultimate gain. If you're, if you're trying to look for what is going to make your life worth it, under the sun, you will not find it. Life under the sun is like running on a treadmill. You work really hard. You work up a sweat. But when you get off the treadmill, guess what? You're right where you started. You didn't move forward. And so living wisely, adjusting our life according to the seasons that we're in, is good, but it doesn't fix the problem that life and everything in it under the sun is vanity. Vanity. In other words, when, it, when that word vanity shows up in Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, it's saying that life, the nature of life, is that it's a vapor, chasing after the wind. If you grasp vapor, I got it. I don't have it. Life is fleeting. It's ungraspable with your mind or with your muscle. You can't, that's just the nature of life under the sun. Look at verse 10. He says in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
So in verse 10, the business that God has given refers to everything that you and I do in our life. Everything. Every activity, every decision under the sun. And in verse 10, it's reminding us again, God gives the seasons. The business that God has given us. God sets the time. God is the sovereign one. So we make decisions that have real significance. We put our tiles into the mosaic. But in the end, God has the final say. Ultimately, God is writing the story of our life and of the world and of history, and he's putting his mosaic together. Notice in verse 11, it says, the preacher says that God has put eternity into our hearts. Having eternity in our hearts is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's part of what it means to be made, it's part of what it means to be human, right? Your, your dog or your cat, if you're a pet owner, is not worried about eternity. They just do the next thing. But, but as a human being made in the image of God, God has not just put eternity in our hearts, he's made us for eternity. Imagine if you read a really good novel halfway through, or you're watching a riveting movie and you stop the movie halfway through. You stop the movie, you stop the book, right when the plot of the movie or the book was thickest, and you're just thinking, oh, this is good. And, and then you just stop reading. You stop the movie, you stop the book. How do you feel in that moment? You just walk away from it. You're thinking, how does it end? I, I, I've got to get resolution. Part of the reason is for that is because God has put eternity in our hearts. We, we, we are created to want to know how the past, how the present, how the future fits together because we want to make sense of our lives, especially when life feels crazy and chaotic like it has for the last two and a half years, like it maybe has for the last 40 years of your life. I don't know. We want to know how it fits together. And then something ugly happens in our life, or you do something ugly. And, and the, 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 the wickedness that we see in this world leaves us asking, okay, how does this fit together? If, if there is a good God who's writing history, what am I to do with this tile of injustice or death or tragedy or illness? What do I do with it? How does this fit? Where is God in this? Several years ago, I had the joy of traveling through Istanbul, Turkey, and I remember stopping at this one shop where there was this lady who was weaving together a Turkish rug on her loom. And as you watch, uh, as I, I remember watching her weave this Turkish rug, on the top of the rug, you saw this beautiful pattern of colors and intricate design coming together, and you just watch and marvel at the, the beauty of this tapestry. But what's interesting is that if you look on the other side of this Turkish rug, underneath, all you see are knots and loose threads kind of hanging from the Turkish rug. It was a mess underneath of it. And really, that's our perspective on this life. Our perspective, as we look out with our limited perspective, we look at life from under the loom. Or as our preacher here says, under the sun. 
we just look up and it just looks like a mess. We don't see how it all fits together. It just looks like knots and loose threads. But the preacher says, no, God is weaving history together to make it beautiful. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. The Hebrew word there for everything means everything. The mistakes that you've made, the sin that you've committed, the sin that's been committed against you, the tears that you've shed, COVID, cancer, death, injustice, war, abuse, or any other suffering that you might have gone through or you will go through, God does not cherry pick just the good times for the mosaic that he's making. He uses even the tear-drenched, ugly things of life that don't make sense to us, and he weaves them together to make all things beautiful in their time. Only a sovereign God who sees the big picture, who's in control, who's all-powerful, can do just that. Praise be to God that he is that God. So we long to know how the pieces fit together. We want to know how the past and the present and the future fit together. We want to make sense of things. But the preacher tells us, notice this, the preacher tells us in verse 11, I know you know, I know you want to know this, but verse 11 says, we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Don't miss that. We, you can try, but we cannot. It's above our pay grade. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And and you might read that in verse 11 and say, well, that just sounds harsh. That just sounds mean of God. Why would God put eternity in our hearts and then withhold information from us like this? Why would God do that? Well, if you're asking that question, the preacher answers that question for you in verse 14. Look at verse 14. God has done it. Why? So that people may fear before him. To fear God in in this context is to trust him, it's to worship him. Like Adam and Eve, we, by human nature, push against the idea that God alone is God. We want to be God. We want to control our tomorrow. We don't want to trust God when it comes to the things that are really valuable to us. We don't want to risk it. We want to be in control. We want to be God. But no matter how hard we try, the preacher's gonna remind us over and over throughout Ecclesiastes. All of life under the sun is vanity. It's fleeting. Life is the vapor. If you try to control your life, it's like grasping the wind. The nature of life under the sun is that it is havel, it's a vapor, it's ungraspable, both with your mind and it's ungraspable with your muscle. You can't can't force life to do what you want it to apart from God. We can't push the pause button when times are good. We can't push the fast forward button when things don't make sense to us and we don't like where we're at. 
and we cannot find out what we're looking for from our perspective under the loom, under the sun. But what we can't see, God sees. We seek and can't find. How do these things fit together? We seek, we seek, we seek, we can't find. But notice, God also seeks and he finds. You notice that in the verse, at the end of verse 15. The end of verse 15 says, God seeks what has been driven away. And when God seeks, he finds. The imagery there, when it, when it says that God seeks, it's the imagery of a shepherd. As a shepherd seeks for his lost sheep, God is our shepherd. And it's not just that God shepherds his people. In this context, God shepherds time. He seeks out our lost moments and brings them all together. It is a merciful reminder that God is God and that we are not. And it's merciful because it relieves us from the exhausting, impossible task of trying to be God and trying to control our future, control our kids, control our church's future, control our nation's future. We're not God. Rather than trying to be God and weary ourselves, we can trust our shepherd who rules over time, who shepherds time, time, and we find when we trust him, we find rest, we find joy. That's what verses 12 and 13 says. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So when he says eat and drink and enjoy, this is not the cry of an atheist who says, well, there's no God, so there's no point, so eat, drink, and be merry. It's the best you can do because you're going to live and die and then the worms will get you. No, it's not the cry of an atheist. It's the cry of a preacher who says, no, 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 quite the opposite. Because there is a God, the preacher says, eat, drink, and take pleasure in your toil. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to control your life. Instead, trust the God who gives the seasons, who gives the gifts to enjoy. In that, in, in that sense, God's sovereignty, his being in control, is the basis of our joy. But what about real life, right? What about the things in life that threaten that joy? Isn't that an objection to what the, the preacher's saying? Well, he's going to end in verses 16 to 22. He's going to end by addressing those objections. So look at verse 16 as we bring this to a close. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see what, that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? God is in control. God is the one who sets the seasons, and we're called to trust the shepherd. But one thing that threatens the joy that comes from trusting the shepherd is injustice. And he's highlighting that threat to our joy in verses 16 and 17. 
And then a second thing that threatens our joy is death. And that's in verses 18 through 21. Two objections. What about injustice, preacher? What about death, preacher? And he addresses those. His point about death is not just that we're going to die, but his point is that from our limited perspective, from our view under the loom, under the sun, it appears that our death is no different than our dog or our cat or the bird that hit the window in your house and died. From our perspective, it just, that's it. From what we can see, it just looks like that's it. We're in the dust. But the idea that death is the end doesn't sit right with us. Our, our conscience, the, the creation that proclaims that there is a God, says, hold on, hold on, there's got to be more. And if God has put eternity in our hearts, that's why our hearts say, hold on, death is not the end. There's, there's got to be something after death, isn't there? Surely there's something after death. But on what authority can we know that there is something after death? By what authority can we say that this, this life on this earth under the sun is not it? We can't just say, well, I feel that way, and so my feelings are what's telling. No, that doesn't, that's not, doesn't work. And for all its benefits, science can't tell us what happens after we die. All that science can do is affirm, yet we've done these experiments, we've done, the, we've done, these, we've done these tests, and the empirical data shows that you will turn to dust. That's it. Philosophy can try, but it's really just a guess. The philosopher's just guessing. The philosopher, like the rest of us, is limited to their perspective under the sun. The only way that we can know what happens after death is to have a transcendent statement come not from under the sun, but from above the sun, from outside our system which we live in. We need a statement that came that comes from God and his word that tells us this is what happens after you die. And we hear the answer to that question when the preacher addresses the other threat to our joy, the threat of injustice in verse 16. Look at verse 16 once more. Moreover, I saw that under the sun there is, more of I saw under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So he's saying, listen, there's injustice. Even the, even, even the best human courts in this world are imperfect. Some criminals go free because they have the money to pay, you know, pay off the judges and the lawyers to get the loopholes. Some victims will never see justice this side of heaven. Some people will spend time in jail for a crime they never committed. That's unjust. The Hebrew word for righteousness in verse 17 is the Hebrew word sadiq. And you can define that word sadiq this way, this righteousness. It says that we define it this way. The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. Let me say that one more time. The righteous, the sadiq, disadvantages themselves to advantage others. So when we look out in real life and we, we, we think of people in authority, a politician, a boss, husband, a parent, an elder. In a fallen world, there's times when we 
say with broken hearts, in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. And behind the wickedness is a trail of destruction. And we ask, well, where's God in this? What do we do with this tile in the mosaic of our lives? And though we cannot find out what God has done, what God is saying in this, this context is that he is the guarantor of justice. He will bring about perfect justice in the end. Look at verse 17. The preacher gives us a word from above, a transcendent word from God. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. When we see injustice for a season, it may seem like the wicked get away with it. Like the wicked prosper and the righteous fall behind. For a season, it might look like God's not paying attention, that God didn't see this, that God doesn't care. We might think that for a while. But the Bible again and again reminds us that just at just the right time, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will come a second time. He came once to die for sin. He promised to come a second time. And when he comes a second time, he will sit on his throne as the judge of all mankind. And he will bring perfect justice. Verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away. The times that the wicked thought, I got away with it. God, our shepherd, will retrieve those moments and he will hold the wicked accountable. And the truth of God's judgment, the truth of God's judgment sets us as his people free to forgive those who sinned against us. The truth of God's coming judgment sobers us as the people of God to examine our own hearts, to flee from the sin that we see in our lives today. The truth of God's judgment helps us to endure the pain of injustice with patience, knowing that vengeance is God's, he will repay, he will right every wrong, and evil will not have the final say in our lives or in this world. God will. If you skip to the very end of Ecclesiastes, this is how it ends. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Preacher's preaching a long sermon here. He gets to the verse thir- thir- 12, chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Why? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. On the judgment day, the Bible describes God's righteous wrath as so invasive, his his judgment as so piercing, as so complete. Even the secret things we thought were secret are not secret to God. God's judgment will be so intimidating that men will call on the rocks to fall on them and hide them from God's face. So friends, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus this morning, the, the God's word of, of warning, God's word of love to us this morning is to say that that day of judgment is coming and none can avoid it. And, and the reason that a Christian can look at that final day of judgment with hope and not dread is not because we are good people. The people at Chevrolet Baptist Church are not inherently good people in and of themselves. 
Now, left to ourselves, we are the wicked who deserve God's judgment. Like all mankind, we have sinned and we deserve God's righteous wrath. No, a Christian's joy on that final day is because we have found a refuge in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came and he died on the cross to take on himself our sin and God's righteous wrath. He came to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we would not have to. Christ died on the third day. He rose from the dead so that anyone who would turn from their sin, anyone who would trust in Christ, can have confidence on that day of judgment, confidence not in themselves, but confidence in Jesus, that because of Jesus, the cup of God's wrath is empty. Instead, if, they, if you turn and trust in Christ, what you'll find is the open arms of a father who loves you and who will forgive you. So friends, I implore you, if you're not yet a Christian, to trust in Christ, turn from your sin, turn from your self-reliance and trust in Christ today. Psalm 23 is a favorite part of the Bible for many. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the Psalm 23 ends by telling us that how, it, it doesn't tell us how all the pieces of our life fit together, but the Psalm 23, Psalm 23 does promise us that goodness and mercy shall what? Follow. Not lead, but goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. So we don't know what tomorrow is gonna hold for us. Psalm 23 doesn't tell us what will happen tomorrow. tomorrow. So we don't, we don't lean on that knowledge. We trust the shepherd in whatever season he brings tomorrow. What's left for us then? Ecclesiastes 3.22. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? We don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. But no matter what, friends, if you trust in God, if you trust the good shepherd, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Let's trust the good shepherd together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who stands above time and who orders time and who's sovereign over time. We pray that we would be those people who trust in you, that we might know the joy and the peace and the life that comes from following you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.